0: And as we begin our time in First Peter chapter one, verse twenty-two, uh, I, I need to um, I need I need you to bear with me. I'm not a horticulturalist, so so I can't tell you all the various kinds of plants based on their leaves and and and, and whatnot. Now I know some of you can, but for me, uh, the best way to know what kind of plant it is is to see its fruit. The easiest way for me to, to see uh, what, a, what a plant is and, and, and uh, understand it is to see it's the flower that blooms from it or, or the fruit that comes from it. And so I know it's an orange tree when I see the orange blossoms and the oranges. I know it's an apple tree when I see the apples and so on and so forth. Now, some of you, I'm sure you can tell in other ways, but for me, the, the fruit of the tree is what, is what helps me to determine what it is. Now, that's not that much different from uh, believers either. You and I can tell a believer by the fruit that they bear in their life. We, you and I can see the fruit that should be b- being born out of us, and we can determine that there's a grace inside of us. Now, one of my favorite authors and, and speakers uses this illustration, and so to steal from him, uh, we could have a beautiful apple tree in our front yard, but it could produce no apples. And my wife could come to me and say, I need you to fix this apple tree. It's driving me nuts that there's no apples on this apple tree. And I could drive over here to the, to, uh, the Kabul hardware store, and I could, I could grab me a staple gun and some staples, and I could come over here to town and country and grab uh, a bunch of apples, and I could go and I could staple those apples on that tree. Does that fix the tree? No, all I'm doing is, is putting stuff up there. In a day or two, it's going to be rotten and falling off, right? And so often in the Christian life, we see things are missing, and we go and we begin stapling things on the branches of our life. We think, well, if we, if we put a little prayer here, and a little Bible reading here, and a, little, and a little church attendance over here, and a little tithing over here, then all of a sudden, I have the fruit of a believer. But the Bible is clear, and Peter is clear, that that is not how we determine whether or not we're believers. What, what we see is this fruit coming out of who we are. We're not, going in, we're not an apple tree trying to make ourselves an orange tree. We're not trying to make ourselves different. No, the Christian life is being about transformed from the inside out. Who we are is being transformed by God. And that's why we've spent the last several weeks looking at the grace of God that should be in the heart of every believer. And it's out of this grace, when it makes its way into our hearts, that we bear the fruit that is natural with it. God's grace produces a certain kind of fruit. And it's our responsibility to recognize that fruit in our life. And when we don't recognize it, we need to begin questioning, has God truly transformed my heart? And if he's not, maybe he has transformed my heart and I've grown apathetic in these things. And, and maybe I need, to, I need to meditate on God's grace more so that these things would come out more in my life. Or for many of us, maybe it's just an opportunity to rejoice for the work that God has already begun in us. And so as we look at this message from Peter today, he's calling us to recognize that this grace implanted in our hearts blossoms in two different ways. It produces The fruit of brotherly love, or the blossom of brotherly love, and Bible cravings. Brotherly love and Bible cravings are the evidences that Peter gives us for what it looks like when a believer has been transformed by the grace of God. So this morning, I'm calling you to examine your lives. This is not an opportunity for you to examine the life of your neighbor, to examine the life of your cousin, to examine the, the life of somebody sitting in this room. This is the opportunity for you to examine your life by these fruits and see, has God's grace truly impacted me in this way? So with that in mind, I ask that you would read with me First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verses 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word for us, and as we examine this, I want us to notice in in chapter 1, verse 22, in in that second part of verse 22, 22b, if you will, this is the command that we have in this verse. Now, when we're reading through Scripture, it's important that we look for the for the main verb. What's the main thing he's calling us to do? And in this, in this instance, the main thing that he's calling us to do is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So this causes us, if we're examining ourselves, then the question we should ask is, is your new birth or your birth in Christ demonstrated by the way you love one another? Looking at this verse, we can see that there is a... There, there is a call to love. And, and that's important for us to consider because in today's world, when I say love, how many of you have a different thing come to mind? Right? I, I mean, in, in today's world, we have all kinds of uh, things coming to mind about what love is. And, and, and those are interpreted... I mean, we say we love cheeseburgers. And then you say you love your wife. Now, do you love your wife the same way you love your cheeseburgers, men? Here's your opportunity to get yourself out of a hole. Okay, um, hopefully you love your wife more than you love a cheeseburger. We we use the word in, in, in many different ways, but it's important that we understand what Peter is talking about here. He's not talking about a feeling that you have when you consider your children growing up. That's sentimentalism. That's not wrong. It's just that's not what he's considering here. He's not talking about love as this thing that you fall out of. That's favor. He's not talking about um, a, a food that you experience. Peter here sees love as a relationship with somebody else that reflects the character of God. Love is, is our relationship to someone else that reflects the character of God. The way that he loved us is expressed in the way we care for others. Is that how we love one another? This is the call for love. Are we loving in this way? And, and we notice the direction for love here is towards one another. Love one another. Now, I think this is important for, him to see, for us to see that this is not a one-way street. That the love within the church, and I need to be clear that this one another... He's speaking to in this context is not the world outside of us This loving one another is fellow believers in jesus christ There is places in first peter where he's going to call us to love a lost and dying world But here the love that's reflected in this place should look much differently than the love that's reflected out there Is everybody with me the love that's reflected here should be much different than what's reflected out there because we have experienced a different kind of love. We have, we have felt the love of God in our hearts. We have understood it and comprehended it or begun to. And as Paul prays, we're, we're hopefully coming to a growing knowledge of that. And as we do, we're able to express love in a different way than those outside the church. And he's calling us to love one another inside the church. And this isn't a one-way street. But what I don't mean by this is because they're not loving me, I'm not going to love them. How many of us that's be honest? That's that's the way we we operate. We want to think, well, I'll love them as soon as they start loving me the way they should. Well, if that's the case, um, we would not be saved. Right. Because Christ died for us while we were what yet sinners while we were sinners, We weren't anywhere fit to love him or return love to him, and yet he loves us. Our love ought to reflect the same. It doesn't demand that they love us before we start loving, but love should go both ways. We should come to church and not expecting to be served, but contemplating how can we serve. If we are to love one another, then that means that before I ever leave my house on Sunday morning, I should be thinking about who is going to be here on Sunday that I can express love and care for. Who is it here that I know is struggling that I can go and I can say, how are you doing with this? Who is it here that, that as I understand them and understand their struggles, I can go to them and say, you know what, I've been praying for you this week. Can I, is there anything else I can be praying for you about? You don't have to wait for a prayer meeting to express those concerns for one another. Love for one another should be something we intentionally think about. It's something that we contemplate how we're going to love one another. And this love has a certain kind of look. He says, love one another from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This has both the intensity and the source. Intensity and the source. We love one another earnestly. Now, this term for earnest, um, there's not a lot of, uh, in the original manuscript, there's not a lot of English words that can express that. And what this term really means is to be stretched out. It has this this idea of being stretched. Love one another till till you're stretched so far. How many of us stretch ourselves and our love for one another? Or how many of us think the opposite of how much do I have to do to love them? You know, the, uh, the Pharisees do this. Jesus tells them, Love your neighbor as yourself. What do the Pharisees say? Who's my neighbor? How far, how far does that love have to go? Is it just the people that live on both sides? Is it people that live on both sides and behind and in front? For some of us, there's a long distance, so maybe I don't have to love anybody. Right? The same is true with love. In this instance, uh, we want to say, well, how much love do I have to express to these people? Because you know what? Sometimes it's hard. So how much love do I have to express to these people that are hard to love? Peter here is calling us to stretch ourselves and our love for one another, to press further and further into how much can I love one another? And where is the source for this kind of love? The source for this kind of love is from a pure heart. It, it, it is something that comes from within. It's something that is meaningful. It is not an, an outward look. It's not a a mask we put on to say, okay, now I'm loving somebody. That's not the kind of love that he's calling us to. He's saying if we have genuinely experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then this is the kind of love that you and I should express to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It should be natural. The one who is our brother, Christ Christ should be calling you and I to naturally express the love of God in this way. This is the call for our love. What's the cause of our love? And in the beginning of verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So we already know what our love is to look like. This love that characterizes the believer. But where does it come from? The love that you and I experience in Christ is the love that we then turn and give to others. This love is a love that has begun with us purifying our souls. Now that's kind of a weird phrase, right? That's that's not something we, we use a lot in modern day Christianity. It's this idea of our hearts being set apart. Our, the core of our lives being set apart to God. Does that sound familiar to the verses prior to this when we were to be holy or set apart as he is holy? The same, the same idea is contained here. This idea of our, our hearts have been set apart for God. We have been set apart as holy unto God. We have purified our hearts. How are our hearts purified? By our obedience to the truth. Now, we've got to be very careful here because the idea of obedience to the truth makes it seem like our salvation is something we do. Most of us in here know that that is not something we do. We came to Jesus kicking and screaming, and and, and we weren't sure about this Jesus guy. But once he got a hold of our heart, there was no letting go. So when we say this idea of, of obedience to the truth, what is he referring to here? Well, he's referring to this idea of the initial act of obedience in submitting to Jesus Christ. Uh, last week, we, we had a young lady want to come forward and, and share with us uh, her obedience to the truth. She wanted to share with us her desire to submit to the truth of God, that she wanted to be that person. And as I sat and talked with her, and, and Evelyn was with me, and, and, we, and we talked to her, she, she just said, I want to obey Jesus, but I, I fail every day. I need him to help me. That is this obedience to the truth that he's referring to here. This opportunity of of obedience. I want to obey Christ and submitting to him. It's that initial act of submitting to God's word. What is is it that this has caused? He says, having purified your souls by this. So having your heart set apart by this obedience or this this, um, initial act of submitting to God for what? For a sincere brotherly love. Something that should be true of every believer is that when we submit to Christ, we love his people. When we submit to Christ, we love his people. It's, it's common in modern day um, evangelicalism to say, I love Jesus, but not the church. That is not possible. It is physically not possible because... Every time we see a love for Christ in those scriptures, we see a love for one another, a love for the body of Christ. So here we have this idea of loving one another, even when it, even when it hurts. For this sin. We have been obedient to God. We are submitting to God even for our love for one another. That means that when we say we are going to submit our lives to Christ, we submit to the fact that we will have to love difficult people. This shouldn't work. Us in here today shouldn't work because we come from all different walks of life. And I know I've said this a million times. The only thing that explains how believers from all different walks of life, all different uh, likes and dislikes and and, and all all different uh, loves and and hobbies and everything else, the only reason that this should work is because our chief love is Christ. And as such, we are going to love one another regardless of how strange you may think I am. We're going to love one another, and we have been obedient to Christ for this sincere brotherly love. This word "sincere" here has this um, is is contrasted with this idea of unhypocritical. Sincere has this connotation of being unhypocritical, or or this idea of being being who I am, taking off the mask, if you will. This this. Sincerity means that when you and I sit down, we are just going to be us. Now, as a pastor, you hear all kinds of crazy stories. And and someone shared a story with me recently, uh, um, actually with my wife recently, um, telling her about the dangers of being sincere as a pastor. The dangers of just being who you are. As a pastor because people are going to hurt you so you don't want to give them any more information than they then they need to know because they're going to hurt you and and it broke my heart because I don't I can't tell you how many pastors have told me that exact same thing but if you get to know me and my wife we we are who we are and you know what we recognize that at some point we're going to be hurt at some point someone is going to hurt us we're sinners living together trying to move in the same direction odds are we're going to be sinned against amen i'm getting some blank stares. are you all afraid to agree with me we're going to get hurt i come knowing that I come knowing that that when we work together as believers that we're going to get hurt, so I'm just going to be who I am. I'm not going to be something fake. I want to be sincere, and that's what we ask of you to each other, is that you be sincere, and when there are struggles in your life, that you share those with one another, that we would bear one another's burdens. How is it that we can even keep, in the Scriptures, there are 31 one-another commands... 31 commands of how we should treat one another. And there's even more, but they're in specific context of marriage and parenting and so forth. So 31, that we should commit towards each other in here. If I don't know you, how am I supposed to do those things? If I don't know what's going on in your life, how am I to pray for you? If I don't know what your sin struggles are, how am I to bear those burdens with you? If we don't know one another, if we're not sincere in our love for one another, not with this mass, but sincerity then how are we going to accomplish this command? We can't do it. We need genuine believers who genuinely love one another, and this is a fruit of, of the grace that is in us. So we have the call to love, the cause to love, and the core of love. What is it that is down deep and the roots that allows us to love one another the way we ought? Well, verses 23 through 25 Express that clearly. Since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. There's that Peter's favorite comparisons, the perishable and the imperishable. Since you've been born again not of the perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we have here this idea of the reason that you and I... Now, we're switching metaphors, and, so, and I have to be careful with how I, with how I do this. The, the reason that you and I are able to love one another is because we have been begotten by God i I'm for, just because there's um, I'll, I'll just ha- I have to use my language differently because there are children in the room. So um, this idea here is the idea of siring. For those of you who understand what a sire is, that's what's that's what's going on here. This this seed of man that the seed that is being implanted in our hearts is that of birth, that of children, not of plants, if you're with me. So there's this seed that is being planted in our heart. What is that seed? It's this idea of, now I am a child of God. I am am born again, is the phrase that we use in Christian language. I am a brother and sister of Christ. So this is going back to Peter's idea of children. This is going back to the fact that I am a child of God. Therefore, I should reflect that this this seed that God has implanted in me is not something that is perishable. Now, each of us, if you're a man in this room, each of you, I know, wants to leave your children a legacy. Maybe, I'm not necessarily saying an inheritance, but a legacy. You want to leave them with a particular aspect. No matter what kind of man you are, you want your children to know what life is like to a certain degree. And you teach them those things as you go throughout. For me, my parents were constant about the work ethic. They they were constantly teaching me those things. And to this day, when I am doing something, my parents' work ethic just kind of infiltrates me. And sometimes I can push myself too far. So this is this legacy. But you know what? There's going to come a point in my life when I die. It's, it's going to happen, right? That happens to all of us. Either the Lord's going to come back and take me home, or I'm going, to, I'm going to die one way or another. That legacy, it's going to perish. The best of what we have to offer our children is going to perish. But God gives us something that is imperishable. Odds are, for you and I, within two generations, those children will not know my name. It's just, we are perishable. There's nothing to us. Now compare that to the word of God and the gospel, which has been carried out for thousands of years. God's word is imperishable. It continues to penetrate our lives and change people from age to age to age to age. From generation to generation, God's word is imperishable imperishable. It is impacting people's lives, and it is the seed which causes us to be changed. The thing that you and I should want to pass on to our, this is a side note, but the thing that you and I should want to pass on to our children is something that is imperishable. Something that goes beyond my life, and their children's life, and their grandchildren's life. I want them to experience the word of God and its transforming power, and I want them to pass that on from generation to generation, that it might, they might impact something living and true and, and abiding. Thus, he gives us these words, that this imperishable seed is the living and abiding word of God. In other words, it possesses life and endures through eternity. Eternity. If you have truly been impacted by the grace of God, then you know the power of God's word. You know that what we're reading is not mere words on a page like we would a novel. What we're reading is is true, life-impacting words that will endure through eternity. And he illustrates that with this idea of flesh and, and grass and the flower. And he says, all flesh is like grass. Now, some of you, when I say that, you're like, oh, man, I need to mow my yard. Hang with me here for a minute. All right, all flesh is like grass. And you're like, oh, i got to mow my... It seems like it's always growing, right? No, but the yard we used to have was full of zoysia grass. I don't know how many of you are familiar with zoysia grass. It's the most resilient grass. It's, it's as thick as carpet. But something it does every year is it dies. And it turns Brown. Looks like you got dirt in your yard. It's the most obnoxious grass in the world because it's impossible to mow and it looks disgusting every fall. Because it, you know, but there's a short period of time during the spring it looks beautiful. You know, it's it, you can mow it real tight. It looks like a golf course out there. But but every time it, it dies, and, and it and it and it just turns brown. It, its glory of that that spring fades away. This is what he's talking about. This grass, yes, it may look good for a little while, but there's going to come a fall. Every year it's going to die. And you know what? The flower of the grass is going to die too. This idea contained in the flowers, the flower is the glory. Man's glory like a flower of grass. Now, you may think, well, I don't have any glory to pass on. This is what he's talking about. This glory contained here is this idea of of my, the, the things that I have, the, the inheritance I want to pass on, the, the, the truths, everything, the best of what I have is going to pass away. I mean, think about the man that invented 8-track tapes. In his day, he had to have been the coolest guy ever. I'm assuming it's a guy, maybe it was a lady, I don't know. He had to, been, he had to be the coolest person ever, Right? but now our children would look at an 8-track tape and be like, what is that thing? It's huge. Like the old cell phones that, you know, would take up half your face. And those things pass away. The glory of man, the best of what we can invent, it passes away, it fades, it destroys. But the word of the Lord is forever. And that word is the word, the good news that was preached to you. The thing that, that... is imperishable, is the gospel that you and I have received and, and bears fruit coming out in our life. And that fruit must be, I, I belabored this too much, that fruit must be our love for one another. Now, Jesus, and to illustrate this, Jesus in John chapter 13, we see this beautiful picture of Christ taking the lowest possible position. and He begins washing the feet of his disciples. Now, for you and I, that sounds pretty gross, right? But for Jesus, that was even more disturbing. Because, you know, we're talking sandals and walking all day and and, and arid and dry places. It had to have been pretty gross. It was the the lowest of places. And we see this beautiful picture where Jesus gets down, wraps a towel around himself, and begins washing his disciples' feet. And and at the end of that, that moment... He turns to them and says, "One of you is going to betray me." I find it interesting that he washes their feet first, all of them, and then says, "One of you is going to betray me." His betrayer leaves the room, and immediately following that, Jesus gives them a new command. And John 13: 13, 13, 34 through 35, he says, "A new commandment I give you that you love one another." just as I have loved you. Now, if that, doesn't, if that doesn't break your heart, that Jesus would love us, that Jesus would, in a moment, love us so much to take the filthiest position, the lowest of position, though he was to be exalted on high and sit enthroned in heaven, he would take the lowest position on earth to wash the feet of even those who would betray him. And he says, love one another this way. Then he follows that with, just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus has just announced to them that he's going away. Jesus has defined their life He has been at the center of their crowd. When people see them, they see Jesus. Now Jesus is going away. How will people recognize that they are Christians if Jesus is not in their midst? By their love for one another. That is how they will be recognized as believers. That is how they will be recognized as followers of Christ. That God has changed their life is because of their love for one another. How are we doing? If, if we were to define our lives, by the, if we were to define the characteristics of our lives, would we say we love one another? Would people from outside this building look at those who belong here and say, you know what? They love one another. They're sincere. They stretch themselves in their love for one another. They love for one another more than I can even imagine. You know what happens in, in Acts when the people of God began loving one another, thousands of people are added to their midst daily. It, when it says they shared possessions as any had need, it's talking about each other. This is not like a handout to society. They're talking about this is how they cared for one another, and people outside them saw how they cared for one another and said, there's something different about them. We want to be a part of their midst. We want to experience the love they have for one another. This is the defining characteristics that should should impact our lives. If I were to go out and interview the people in this community and ask them, how would you describe them? Would love be at the top of their list? This is the blossom that should be evidence of God's fruit in our life. But it's not the only one. He also gives us this idea of Bible cravings. This is a much shorter text he gives us here in in verses 1 through 3. He says, in verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, for those of you who are familiar with your Bible, you may try to import into that the the things of Hebrews 5, in which Paul rebukes people for needing milk instead of solid food. That's not what Peter is saying here. Peter is illustrating. He says that we are to long long or crave the pure spiritual milk and that that spiritual milk is the word of god the christian life is not comprised of a lack of desire but consists of the deepest cravings people should characterize us as one-minded people Not in the sense of one-sided that we're not willing to hear other people out. It's the sense that we always want to seek God's word. We want to know it more than anything else. We want to, we long for God's word. Here Peter gives us this blossom of grace of genuine believers have the deepest cravings for God's word. If we have truly experienced the truth that is in here and we're like, man, I want to submit to this. I have to know it. I want to know it. And I want to know it as a newborn infant longs for milk. Now, I don't know about you all, but my experience of a new inf- newborn infant longing for milk is different from my wife's, because she's the one that was feeding Abraham. And and I normally don't like to use my children as an illustration, but I think this is a great illustration. Um, Abraham, when he was born, he ate. A lot. He would eat every hour and a half for forty-five minutes. Okay, a lot of food. Okay, he's always hungry. And how many of you have ever had to remind your infant children that they need to eat? If they get hungry, they're going to let you know. They they, they want it, right? They're very simple-minded. Eat, sleep. And go to the bathroom. That's about it, right? And they're going to let you know when they're missing any of those three ingredients. We believers, like newborn infants, should be very simple-minded. We should, we should know we want to rest in Christ. We want to... We, 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 we know that we are sinners and we need to repent of our sin. But above all, we should want to long for the Word of God as a newborn infant longs for milk. We should want to desire that. That means whether we're 10 or 110, we want His Word. We can't get enough of it. We should should long for it in this way. Why? That we may grow up into salvation. Bible intake is not the end goal. It is the fruit. It's the idea that I I should be recognized as one who wants to know God's Word, um, uh, there have been people in my life, uh, well, historically speaking, um, Spurgeon is a great, he's the prince of preachers, and, and though I preach much different than him, I can't get enough of his sermons, and when I, when you hear people in his era talk about him, they would say the same thing. If you were to prick him, he would bleed Bible. That's how much Bible he took in. If you were to, if you were to prick him, he would, scripture verses would just flow out of him. Because every time he talked, it was just verse upon verse upon verse. He, he just couldn't get enough of God's word. That should be characteristic of all of us, but that is not the end goal. The end goal is that we may grow up. We don't eat for the purpose of eating, though I do enjoy that purpose. That's not why we do that. We eat for the sake of maturing, for the sake of growing up. You moms in the room, why do you feed your children well-balanced meals? Well, because you want them to be, grow up and be healthy, right? In the same way our Father in heaven has given us his word that we might be nourished by it and grow up and mature into men and women of God, that we might continue maturing until when? Until we receive our salvation. And here he's referring to our salvation in heaven, that the future salvation that he referred to before. The purpose for our cravings of the word are that we might grow up into what we've already been given. We've already been promised eternity. Now we are to grow into that existence. We are to desire maturity. I've used this illustration before. How many of you would want your children to, to grow up still drinking from a bottle? We wouldn't want that, right? We want them to eventually be able to drink out of a cup. Probably sooner rather than later. We want them to be out of diapers because they're expensive. And because we, we want them to mature. We want them to be able to operate like, like adults. This is, this is the cravings that you and I, the call for cravings. But where do these begin? They begin when we taste that the Lord is good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Once again, Peter is not questioning their salvation. He's asking them to consider the natural outcome of their actions. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. The best way I know to illustrate this would be, um, there was an old Pringles commercial. You guys remember their motto? Once you pop, you just can't stop, right? Why? Because the moment you taste them, they're so good that you can't stop eating them. Once we taste the goodness of God, if we have truly tasted it, if we have experienced the goodness of God in His Word, we too should want it more than anything else. We should not be able to get enough of it. We we want this goodness that we find here, and and I, I it's important to note that this goodness of the word is associated with God's character. He said he tells them that they should crave the spiritual milk, which is the word, and then here he says, "If you have tasted the goodness of God, when you see those two things, you see something very very important: that God's character is always revealed in His word." I want God's Word because I want to know Him. I want to know Him so I read God's Word. Whichever way you say it, those two cannot be separated from one another. We can't say that we've been changed by God if we have not tasted the goodness of God and His Word. This is a fruit of our life. Well, what is it that prevents us from growing in our desire for His Word? What is it that prevents that? There's hindrances to these cravings. And this is where we go full circle. He tells us in verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The biggest hindrance to our spiritual growth is our relationships with one another. In case you didn't catch that. The biggest hindrance to your spiritual growth is your relationships to one another. Some of us put our relationships too high. Some of us don't consider our relationships at all. Some of us in our relationships are harboring bitterness and hate and, and deceit. Some of us are using our relationships to get other things that we want. The biggest hindrance to our, our growth in Christ, our desire for his word, is that we desire something else in our relationships more. So he tells them to put it all away. Notice what, the, what he says is going to hinder them. Malice. This is this... This malice here is this idea of ill will towards somebody else, and deceit. It's the idea of this bait-and-switch kind of idea um, that we have as believers, in which I'm going to deceive someone else by letting them think this thing. I want them to think I'm righteous, and so I'm going to act a certain way when I come to church, but when I leave church, I'm completely different. That's deceit. That hinders our growth. This... um, Uh, I lost my place. Uh, uh, This um, hypocrisy, this mask that we put on in front of somebody else so that they don't see who we really are. This envy or this jealousy of what other people have. Or this slander, this tearing down and talking poorly about others. If you couldn't say it in front of their face, then you shouldn't say it. These are the things that we are to put away if we are to truly desire God. He says, put it away. And this... And this is the idea of clothing. This, this taking away clothes. I'll appeal to the heart of the mothers in the room. If your children came in covered in mud, how many of you would just put a new shirt over what they already had? If your children came in and they, and they smelled like children do when they play outside for hours on end, how many of us would just want to put... Clean clothes on them and go to go to, go to do something. No, what do you do? You want to take those things off and, and shower them, clean them up. We we want to remove those things, and yet in the spiritual world, in the world that we live in our spiritual lives, oftentimes we want to put on the holy garments of Christ over our dirty garments. We don't want to give them up. We think we can keep our 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 hatred and our bitterness and our envy. And cover it up with Christ. And, and, and we don't need to get rid of those things. Here he's saying we need to put those things away. There's nothing more appalling. And um, if you're a teenager in this room and do this, I'm sorry. There's nothing more appalling than a teenager covering up B.O. with Axe body spray. And yet as believers, that's exactly what we do. We want to try to cover up our filth with the, sm- the fragrance of Christ, but you can't do that. It just smells like hypocrisy. He tells us, put these things away and put on a true, genuine love for one another's, and crave the milk of God's word. He also makes it very clear that we're to put all of them away. Four times, he says, three times, he says four times. One, two three times, um, count them, uh, he says all. He wants to be clear. You can't hold on to part of it. You can't give up part of your envy, part, part of your malice. You can't give up part of it. You've got to give up all of it. We don't get to pick and choose what we're going to keep. I pray that we would desire God earnestly. And for those of us who look at our lives and realize that we don't, I challenge you to read Psalm 63 as many times as possible. Psalm 63 declares, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That you would read David in that verse and cry out to God to give you holy cravings for his word. Is the fruit of your life biblical cravings? I want you for a moment to picture a calendar on the wall of your week. Sunday through Tuesday, through Saturday. That's how most weeks normally go. And as you picture that, start filling it in. Everybody got the picture of the calendar on their head. Start filling it in with what you do during those weeks. How much time do you spend watching TV? How much time do we spend doing hobbies? How much time do we spend reading meaningless material? And as you fill in that calendar and and read those things, and and think about those things, compare that to how much time you spend in his word every week. Now let me ask you this. Could you be characterized as one who craves God's word over everything else? This is the call of Peter. Examine our lives. Do we genuinely love God? As we look at our lives, do, um, does, our, does your life bear the fruit of brotherly love and godly desire? Does it bear that? For some of you here today, you're, you're examining your heart and realizing that you don't really love anyone. Sure, you do nice things, you're polite, you enjoy meals with one another, but a love that stretches itself to its end, uh, you've not experienced that. Maybe you really haven't experienced the love of Christ. Others of you, uh, if I ask you do, you, do you desire, do you crave the Bible? Sure, you read it once in a while, you play scripture, you, you may play scripture roulette when you're struggling. You know, you know what scripture roulette is, right? I don't recommend that style of, of Bible study. But every once in a while we do that. We look, we're looking for anything. We're just desperate for God to tell us something. Maybe that's you. If those things are you, then I plead with you to, to repent, turn from God, and experience for the first time, turn to God, and experience the first time what it means to receive the grace of Christ. For the majority of us in this room, we may find ourselves apathetic to the things of God. As I've gone through these things, you said, yeah, at one time I did love fellow believers, but man, I just, I'm really struggling. I haven't been trying as hard as I used to. I haven't stretched myself in loving others. Look around the room, see who's missing, give them a call this week. Start there. Maybe you haven't been craving the Bible like you should. Put it someplace where you won't forget it. You know, the obnoxious place that you like almost trip over it. Um, it's easier if you have a big Bible, you know, a big family Bible or something in the, in the middle of the room. Desire his word. For some of you today, you love God's word and you love his people, and there's no doubt of that. But you're struggling. You're worn out. Keep pressing forward and know that that is a sign of God's grace in our hearts. Bow with me in prayer.